hear the word of the Lord. You shall also take the fat from the ram, and the fat tail, and the fat that covers the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination. And one loaf of bread, and one cake of bread made with oil, and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron, on the palms of his sons, and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar, on top of the burnt offering, as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering uh, before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved in the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination, from what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel, from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But an outsider shall not eat of them, because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination or of the bread remain until morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten, because it's holy. Thus you shall say to Aaron and his sons, According to all that I have commanded you, through seven days you shall ordain them. And every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement, also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. And the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and with the first lamb a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, Aaron also, and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Holy Father in heaven, uh, we praise you. 
for even um, obscure sections of Scripture like this one that on a first read seems so strange to us, but we trust have been given to us for our life and for our good. So we pray for your Holy Spirit to come, take these words, and instruct our minds, instruct our hearts. Lead us to the grace that is ours in Jesus, and we pray that you would train us in obedience to him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in our second week uh, talking about the ordination of the priests in Exodus 29. And one of the questions that we asked last week when we looked at the first half of this chapter is, who is this about? You know, how does this passage apply to us? Who is it about? The priests. And, you know, one answer to that, well, is that Jesus has come as kind of the final priest. He is our high priest, and we don't have a Levitical priesthood anymore. Jesus has given the once-for-all sacrifice, given us access to God, so we don't have priests anymore. On the other hand, one of the things we talked about last week was how the Bible also says that we're all priests. If you're a Christian, you are part of a royal priesthood, and you have priestly responsibilities. But some of you would also say, you know, I thought our pastors were kind of like our priests. And if you think that, that's partly true too. Even though, you know, there aren't priests in the New Testament church, there's a lot of overlap between the priests in the Old Testament and the responsibilities of pastors in the New Testament. And so today, we're going to talk about being a pastor. And I know that I'm a pastor. I'm going to give a sermon about being a pastor. And you might think that comes across as self-promoting or something like that. But it's what the passage is about. God wants us to talk about it. So we're going to talk about what, what the passage tells us. And uh, you might wonder, okay, if this is a sermon about being a pastor, what does that have to do with you? Well, you know, the Bible tells us in a lot of places the spiritual life of God's people is really tied to the shepherd's the leaders of God's people. So it's important that you have thought about what, what a pastor should be and, you know, what God has called for our pastors to be. When we call pastors to this church, it's really important. Also, some of you might say, you know, maybe God is calling you to be a pastor. There are people sitting here that are maybe are going to be called to the ministry and they need to hear what God's word says uh, about what it means to, to have a, a vocation uh, uh, given to God's word. Now, when we come to a topic like this, um, you know, there's an important tension that we have to maintain because, um, you know, in this passage, I think, talks about some of the real blessings of being a minister. And um, it is possible to overstate the importance of pastors. This is one of the things in the Protestant Reformation that the Reformers really emphasized was that, that you know, pastors and priests don't have more holy jobs than other people. We all have holy vocations. Whatever God has called you to do, if you're, if you're a teacher, if you're a garbage man, if you're a nurse, if you're a mom, whatever it is, that is a holy vocation that brings glory to God. And I have a holy vocation. Our pastors have a holy vocation of, of serving in the church. All of us bring glory to God through our vocations. And yet the Bible also has passages like this one that put some special importance on God's ministers. And you see it? One place here in verse 31, you see where it says, You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a, ho uh, in a holy place, and Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So the, part of this ordination service, the priests get to have this feast in the presence of the Lord. And then it says this in verse 33, they shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration 
but an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And there's a sense in which pastors are both just like us. We all just have a vocation, a calling. But there's also a sense in which God sets them apart. They're holy. They're, you know, no one's allowed to eat in this meal except for the priests. And so today we're going to talk about the blessing of ordination and the, some of the blessing of this set-apartedness. And my hope is that you wouldn't take away from this that I think my job is so important or something like that. But that you would take away from this the goodness of God the character of the God that we worship, and I think it speaks to all of us. So what are the blessings of ordination? Two things I want to highlight from this passage are God's gifts and God's work. God's gifts and God's work. And actually, I think the ordering is kind of interesting. The gifts come first. That's how, always how it is in the Christian life. God gives you his grace and his gifts, and out of the gifts, it's, you'd think it would be you work, and then you get the gifts, not in God's house. You get the gifts, and out of the gifts, you, you work and you serve him. And that's true with his ministers as well. So two things this morning, God's gifts and God's work, and the first is this, God's gifts. What are the gifts that God gives to his servants? Three gifts that we see in this passage are God's house, God's people, and God's holiness. And uh, three of the biggest blessings of being a pastor are God's house, God's people, and God's holiness. I want to talk about each of those. So first, God gives to pastors the gift of God's house. And, you know, I mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago, Psalm 84, where King David says those famous words where he says, better is a day in the courts, in God's house, than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. David says the best thing to do is to be a servant in God's house. So what is so great about being a servant or a doorkeeper in God's house? Well, this passage describes some of the service that happens in in the Lord's house. And if you were here last week, you know that the first part of this ordination service, there were three offerings, three sacrifices that happened. There was a sin offering, a burnt offering, and a peace offering. This passage picks up in the middle of that third offering, the peace offering, And listen to these words. This is what it says in verse 22. I know these sound like these mundane details, but look at what it says, verse 22. You shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is uh, is on them and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination, and one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron, on the palms of his sons, and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Now, what this is describing is the, a meal that is being prepared for the Lord, for Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. And it talks a lot about the fat, and you're like, what's the deal with all the fat? Well, the Lord's the king, and the king gets the fat. And so you got to be careful to make sure the best cut is given to the king. And some of you would say, wait, so the Lord's going to eat this piece of meat? No, the Lord doesn't have a body. They knew that the Lord doesn't have a body. But God in his goodness isn't like, I don't have a body. I'm not going to feast with you. He doesn't do that. He says, I'm going to make a way so that I can still eat with you and feast with you and come into my house. So he's made a way to do that. And if you think, you know, when I read something like that, you think, you know, all those details. And the Old Testament is filled with all these details of rules and things that we need to do. And it's what a burden. I'm so glad we don't have to do that anymore. I think you're missing 
what's happening here. Because this is just culturally, you just haven't done this before. This is why this sounds strange. You know, let me, let me give you an example of what this passage is like. You know, imagine you're 25. You just, you've moved away from home. You know, maybe you're newly married, and you're, it's the first time you're not going to be home for Thanksgiving. And you say, you know, I'm going to invite some people from the church over to my apartment. I'm going to make a Thanksgiving dinner. And then so you email your mom and you say, Mom, I want to do Thanksgiving just like we always did it growing up. And, you know, Mom is so excited that she gets to write an email with all the details about how she does Thanksgiving dinner. And she's like, okay, well, the first thing, you take the turkey. And I always turn it upside down so the fat goes into the breast and it's not dry. And then you're going to baste the turkey and the, the skin's going to get all crispy. And then, you know, you're reading, you're like, Mom, wow. A lot of details here. And, but really what's being described, you know, you need mashed potatoes, lots of butter, salt and pepper, sweet potatoes, a little brown sugar in the sweet potatoes. Get a, you know, a light red wine. Pinot Noir might be good to go with the turkey. Something like that. And there's all these details. Now, if you are like an alien or something and you're reading like, they have this strange thing called Thanksgiving dinner and this mom wrote all these details about it. You think it's so strange just because you haven't experienced it. There are many things that we do that if you tried to write out what you're supposed to do, it would sound like immensely complicated. I mean, if you wrote out emptying the dishwasher, like where the fork goes, where the spoon goes, it'd be immensely, but it's actually pretty simple. That's what this is. It's describing Thanksgiving dinner. And, uh, and how would you feel, how do you feel as a 25-year-old hosting your first Thanksgiving? You feel joy. You feel nostalgia. You feel gratitude. These are memorable moments. And that's some of what it would feel like to be a part of this. Um, to get to serve in Yahweh's house, the Lord's house, and his children are gathered. And you get to prepare the meal where God and his children get to meet with one another. What an incredible blessing. What a joy to be a part of that. And that's, of course, one of the great gifts of being a pastor. You create a setting where God and his people get to meet with one another. That's what we do every Sunday is the feast where we come and we eat with Christ and we commune with him. And that, of course, so serving in God's house with the Lord and bringing the Lord and his children together is a great blessing. But it's related, of course, to the second gift of being a pastor is that God gives to pastors the gift of his people. And uh, you all are after the Lord's house, number two, gift to pastors. Because the second part of the ordination feast, it talks about the portion of the peace offering that was given to the priest. So the third offering was a peace offering. And then you see in verse 26, it, it says the portion that was given to the, to the priest. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination from what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel, from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. So this says that during the ordination service, be, uh, they, the people would provide a peace offering, a ram, as, uh, uh, and a portion was given to the priests. So, you know, the peace offering was the, uh, the sacrifice that God's people would bring, and the worshipers got to eat the animal. They'd cook it up, and then you'd bring all your family around, and you'd eat it, but they didn't get to eat the whole animal. They'd have to give a portion of the animal to the priest. And that's not just once, this says, but that was a perpetual due. 
that went on and on again, and which means that how the priests lived was by the offerings of the people. Of course, that's true in the church today. That's how pastors live, is by the offerings of the people. And I think it's a beautiful way that God ties together the life of his priests and the people. My life is tied up with your life. And, you know, I think that's not, of course, that's not just true in the offerings and the food and how we live and stuff like that. But, you know, many of your lives, I'm present in your lives. Our pastors are present in your lives at key moments, you know, important moments that are happening. And, you know, I've heard many of your stories and, like, parts of your story that not everyone in the church knows about. And you, and also... Every week you come here and it's like we share with you our hearts. You know about how we think and and about our stories. And our lives, our spiritual lives are wrapped up with one another. And because of that, people have strong feelings about their pastors. They can actually love them or hate them. You know, know, pastors can be, I I know my, when I first, uh, Shannon and I first got married, our pastor, Wiser Lake Chapel, Bert Hitchcock, you know, this formative three years of our family's life. And, you know, I still love Colin Burt and I adore him. I think he's the best pastor ever, best preacher ever, best leader ever, you know, godliest man ever. That's how I love him, you know. And, uh, but also, you know, you hear about pastors who are treated really harshly by their congregations. And you think, wow, why does the congregation feel so angry at the pastor about this thing? Why is that? Well, uh, you know, Dan Allender is a psychologist. He gave a talk about, kind of the emotional relationships of congregations. And he's like, well, pastors represent God to people. And people do not have neutral feelings about God. You know, uh, Jesus, people did not have neutral feelings about him. You know, he's coming into Jerusalem. They're either like worshiping him or they're calling out for him to be crucified. And some of that transitions over to God's servants. And, of course, what a blessing, though, that when people love God, they love his servants. And that's a huge gift uh, to being a pastor. So, so pastors get the blessing of God's house. They get the blessing of God's people. Third, God gives to pastors the gift of holiness. And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. You look in verse 29, how it says, The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anoint, uh, anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place shall wear them seven days. So the priests are clothed in holiness. And actually, we looked at some of these garments a couple weeks ago, these ornate ephod, this kind of apron that they wear, and these turbans and these robes that they wear. And uh, one part that we didn't really look at is that they're anointed in these robes. They have oil dumped all over them, and then blood is splattered all over them as well. And so kind of the whole atmosphere as these priests are wearing these outfits is holiness, the holiness and presence of God. And I know for many of you, you know, when you hear the word holiness, what comes into your mind? I think for many of us it's kind of dark, fear and trembling, inapproachableness of God. And that's, of course, an important part of God's holiness. You read about that in the Scriptures But the New Testament picks up this language of wearing garments. And uh, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3, for example, describes the holiness that we're clothed in as Christians. What is the holiness? Listen to this. Put on then, that's a Greek word for putting on garments, clothing. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. What does holiness look like in Colossians 3? 
compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on, this is your garments, love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the holiness which God has. You know, so there's some, I, I don't know exactly how those go together, but there's something inapproachable and, and fear and trembling that's also kindness and humility and meekness and peace and love. Somehow those are one and the same. It's the character of Christ. And so the question is, how do you get that character? Well, there's an interesting answer in this passage. Um, we learn that this ceremony, this ordination ceremony, took seven days. They did it over a seven-day period. They offered a bull of a sin offering every day. And then it says in verse 37, look what it says. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. And then listen to these words. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Whatever touches the altar becomes holy. Now, this is unusual, actually. If you've read through the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, usually in the Old Testament, there's something called a contagion of uncleanness, where unclean things are contagious. So, for example, if, if you touch a dead body, which is unclean, you become unclean. Or if, if you touch a leper who's unclean, you become unclean. So uncleanness kind of spreads like a virus. But in this one instance in the Old Testament, at the altar, holiness is contagious. If you touch the altar, the holiness spreads to you. And, of course, who works at the altar? Who's touching the altar? The priest. Now, as far as I know, there's only one other place in the Bible where there's a contagion of holiness. Who's the one who touches unclean things and doesn't himself become unclean but makes unclean things holy? Jesus touches dead bodies. What happens to the dead body? Comes alive. He resurrects them. Jesus touches lepers. And what happens? They're cleansed. And he passes to them his holiness. Jesus is the ultimate altar. And priests get to work near that altar. It's one of the great gifts of their work is the holiness of Jesus, to be near that. And, of course, you know, that's part of pastoral work. You know, I always think about that. It's like my job to read the Bible and study the Bible. It's like amazing. I'm hoping you guys don't find out about that. That's what I'm doing, you know. It's my job. It's like pretty amazing. Uh, and some of you might hear that and say, oh, okay. So you're saying you're so holy because you have the gift of holiness because you're a pastor? Well, I wouldn't necessarily put it that way. I would say there is an intensification of the spiritual life with ministers. You can experience new depths of the grace of God. Being as one of his ministers, you can also experience new depths of the wickedness of your own heart. And if you read through the Bible, who are the, who are the worst people in the Bible? Who are the people who want Jesus crucified? Who are the people that Jesus says, how, you, how are you ever going to escape the condemnation of hell? It's the priests. The priests are the worst people. The people who are closest to the holiness. The people who are clothed in these garments. And so being close to holiness is both a blessing and a danger. So these are the gifts of uh, being a priest or a pastor. You get to serve in God's house. You, you get to have your life tied up with God's people and you get clothed with God's holiness. And it is only after we've received these gifts then we're given the second point, which is God's work. What is the work of the priest? 
And the answer from this text is that the work of priests is to give themselves to the means of God's grace. The work of priests is to give themselves to the means of God's grace. And you'll notice, you know, in verse 38 in this passage, there's a transition because most of this chapter is about the ordination of these priests. But in 38, it starts uh, describing the work that the priests are going to do on a day-to-day basis. And this is what it says in verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs a, a year old, day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. So every morning in the tabernacle, the priests offer a lamb, and in the evening they also offer a lamb. And you might wonder, okay, why all these offerings every day, like morning and evening, offering these lambs? Well, you know, this whole section of Exodus that we've been looking at is describing the, God's instructions for building this tabernacle and the priests who are going to serve in there. If you go to the last five chapters of Exodus, we're going to look at these next fall, it, they actually build the tabernacle. And so the tabernacle's built, and in the last chapter of Exodus, Exodus chapter 24, in the final paragraph, the final words of Exodus, the tabernacle's built, and God's glory comes and dwells in the tabernacle. And, of course, that raises a problem because the reason God was building this tabernacle is all the Israelites are living in tents, you know, they're wandering around in the wilderness, and God says, you know, I'm going to dwell among you. I'm your God, so I'm going to need a tent too. So build me, here's how you build me a tent. And then God comes and lives in the tent. And you imagine you're an Israelite, and all of a sudden the creator of heaven and earth is living a block away. You know, it's not only he can, like, hear you yelling at your kids, but he, like, knows your secret thoughts of all your sinfulness. Like, how am I going to live down the street from the holy God? And so what's the next chapter after Exodus 40 in the Bible? Leviticus chapter 1, and it begins to describe these sacrifices where God says, I have a means of offering forgiveness and atonement so that you can live near me, to wash away your sin, your grace. He gives us a grace because I want to live with you. And these sacrifices are God's appointed means for communicating his grace to his people. And of course, these Daily lambs were all preparing the people for when the true lamb of God would come, who is Christ. And of course, he is sufficient for all of our sins. That's why we don't offer lambs anymore as an offering. And so the work of the priests is the work of giving themselves to the means of God's grace. And so that's the true for pastors today. What are the means of grace in our church? Well, we're in the Reformed tradition. We historically say the three means of grace are the word of God, the sacraments, which are the baptism and the Lord's Supper, and prayer. That's what, that's what a pastor is supposed to give themselves to, is the means of grace. And, you know, I want to take a moment to appreciate how different from our culture that is. Because, you know, what does our culture want from pastors? Increasingly, over the last couple of generations, American pastors try to act more like CEOs than priests. They are visionaries. They're leaders. They're managers. They're organizers. They're builders. They're charismatic personalities. And these are all ways of saying pastors need to be something important. Which, by the way, some of those things pastors are called to. We are called to be spiritual leaders. We are called to have some vision for the church. But we must never lose sight that it is not their primary work. These priests are to give themselves day in and day out to the means of God's grace for God's people. And I think we should all admit, you know, there's something that feels really wasteful about the work of the priests. Like every day, all these animals, you're going to kill all these animals, and we're going to offer them to the Lord. I mean, couldn't we feed the poor with these animals? 
Couldn't these priests be doing some social program that would really help Israelite society? And, you know, I think the same could be said about pastors. You know, some of you might feel like, are you, how many hours were you spending on this passage? It's kind of an obscure passage. Like, that's a lot of time devoted to, you know, to the word of God or like praying and communing with God. Is, is that a really an effective use of our time? Is that producing results? And the reason we ask those questions is because our culture is deeply pragmatic. We love things that are efficient and produce measurable results. But I think we all know there is nothing that will kill the soul so completely as mere pragmatism. Because what's God's goal in the tabernacle and the priesthood and all the sacrifices? What did he want? Why did he go? All these details that we're reading. This passage is actually a culminating passage in this section. And he tells us, verse 43, There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting in the altar. Aaron and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The Lord went through all this so that his people would know him so that they would know he's their rescuer, that he's committed to them, that he's devoted to them, that they, he's made a covenant with them. And so, uh, so that the people could dwell with him and commune with him. It is a relationship. And all blessed relationships have a wastefulness to them. Right? I mean, doesn't friendship, like real friendship, have some, like, wasting of time has to be present in it? And if a relationship is always efficient, it's always about getting results, you start to feel this isn't love. This isn't real friendship. This isn't real relationship. And this is not just what God wants for the Israelites. That's what he wants for us, too. That you would know him and his grace and commune with the God who is your rescuer. And so the work of a priest and a pastor is not to fix the world or build a big church. Their work is the means of grace so that you will know God, and that's it. And thank God that he's not a pragmatist. He does not want you here for what he can get out of you because you're expedient to him, because you get the results he wants. He wants to dwell with you. He wants to commune with you. And so what is the blessing of ordination? It is simply the goodness of the God of the Bible. That his priests get to serve in God's house, share life with God's people, and be clothed in God's holiness so that they can share with us the abundance and wonder of God's grace. This is God's vision for his servants. This is God's vision for being a pastor. Nothing more, nothing less. Let's pray.